everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our podcast series on Shmot focuses on identity and nationality formation. We're going to try and address the big biblical themes of slavery, redemption, society building, and commitment to a binding code of law, as well as explore together with our guests how we can anchor these big ideas in our modern lives. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. In Parshat Mishpatim, we receive our first major collection of laws. The opening section addresses slavery, likely because it's a category close to the hearts of recently freed slaves, and then moves to topics such as kidnapping, harm to a pregnant woman, damage to crops, and thievery. There is a brief address of laws regulating one's relationship with the divine, the prohibition to utilize sorcery, and then discusses the proper treatment of weaker members of society, the poor, orphaned, and widowed. Principles also deeply connected to our experience as the weak members of Egyptian society. Monumental guidelines regarding judicial integrity, as well as how we should treat our enemies, are also included. The Parsha ends in chapter 24 with the ratification of this covenant with God. It is essentially the closure of the Sinai experience, replete with the nation's gathering, a meal, and God's invitation to Moshe to come to the heavens and receive the Luchot. Today, I am honored to welcome Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman, whose work I have quoted in many past episodes. Dr. Berman is a professor of Bible study at Bar-Ilan University, who frequently lectures at Matan Beit Shemesh as well. He is the author of multiple books on Tanakh, such as Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought, Narrative Analogy in the Hebrew Bible, Battle Stories and the Equivalent Non-Battle Narratives, Inconsistency in the Torah, Ancient Literary Convention and the Limits of Source Criticism, and Anima Amin, Biblical Criticism, Historical Truth, and the 13 Principles of Faith. It's a work that, before we started recording this episode, I spoke to, to Dr. Berman about how formative that has been for me and also for teaching younger students. So it's really a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Yosefa, and uh, greetings to the Matan listening audience. Hmm. So we're really going to jump in. Our conversation today, I promised on earlier episodes that I, we would be discussing the concept of Brit, uh, of covenant, and what that really means in, in the eyes of Tanakh. And this conversation today really focuses on that last section of the Parsha, of the Brit itself, and it also is deeply connected to what happened in, uh, in Parsha Titro, in the actual receiving of, of the Ten Commandments. So... We're going to be discussing this concept of breed, what it really meant in the ancient world, and to compare this idea to its its background in the ancient world. Now, before we jump into understanding that, you know, even just the phrase the ancient world sometimes can sort of turn people off or make them sort of confused about why we're taking Torah out of its utterly unique context of Torah. So before we jump into the content, I was wondering if you could maybe speak to us a little bit about but how we can even talk about Torah in a broader historical context. Okay, so, right, it seems like a very academic sort of thing to do. You find connections between uh, our eternal Torah and very dated, very ancient texts, and especially becomes perhaps a little bit threatening when we see that the Torah expresses itself uh, in using idioms and uh, conventions that are distinctly uh, ancient and that we've kind of lost contact with. The truth of the matter is is that even though this is very prevalent today in academic circles, the first scholar to ever really do this was none other than the Rambam himself. 
Uh, the Raman does this extensively in the third the third chelik of Mor Nebuchim, when he gives the Tamea mitzvot, and time after time, and especially with regard to Avodat HaMishkan, the Korbanot, the Tabernacle, uh, he often says, well, it seems that what the Torah is doing here is kind of a tweak, an improvement over something that the Rambam says, I read about concerning, you know, ancient, ancient Near Eastern cultic practices. He had whatever materials he had. Whether they were accurate or not is not the point. The point here is that the Rambam goes to town with this and makes no apologies for it. And I think that the, the, Ram, the Rambam's view of, on this is that, is that a Kaddish Baruch Hu took Am Yisrael at the level that they were at. And, you know, you can't make, we can't make revolutions out of ourselves overnight, not collectively and not individually. And therefore, on the level that they were on, how could he bring them one step higher to something a little less polytheistic, a little less pagan, if you will. And he does this time and time again. And I think that the Rambam would say that this this is actually a demonstration of the eternal nature of the Torah. Eternal nature of the Torah does not mean that every single aspect, every single word, every single every single sentence, pasuk, will will have the same meaning over all time. As this is a kind of divine Esperanto. What it does mean is that there are perhaps certain things that all of us will be able to tune into and understand equally across the ages. But the capacity of the Torah in each and every age to have things specifically that will resonate more with the people of that time, that's what we mean by the eternal nature of the Torah. And so it, it, it just stands to reason that the first generation, those would actually be receiving the Torah, that there is a certain degree of attention uh, to the mindset of, of that time and the idioms and the writing conventions of that time. And that's what uh, leads us to our topic today. What is the nature of this relationship, Brit, that we have in Parshat Mishpatim? So those are really important points, and they really underscore things we've done in previous episodes. You know, when I speak with Dr. L. Ziegler about the Egyptian theology behind the plagues, right? Those are assumptions that we sort of use, we spoke about there without actually speaking them outright. But I think also in previous episodes we've had, we've spoken about even uh, Kasuto's commentaries on uh, on the Torah. And the idea being, of course, as you said, that their needs, attention was paid to the people who first received the Torah, meaning it's going to have meaning for us, thank God, thousands of years later. But you, if you can't, you know, give a, a gift to a Hebrew-speaking audience and write it in Chinese, meaning it, it has to speak and be relevant and understandable to to those who are receiving it. And so, so yes, of course, we have all these places. Some of them more obvious, and some of them more more hidden and and sort of subtle. That that really are a nod to the initial generations receiving it. And so today, we're going to try and uncover how some of the language surrounding the, the idea of covenant, um, what are some of the things that our modern ears sometimes may miss because we're not aware of the, of the, of the ancient context in which it was given. So let's, let's jump right into that idea wherever, wherever it feels right. Okay, yeah, so let's start with maybe the two most famous words in this week's Parsha of Mishpatim, Na'asev and Ishma. Okay, so here's the question. Did Bnei Yisrael really have an option of not accepting the Torah? I mean, we, we, we like to say here, look, you know, it was freely accepted. Am Yisrael said they would accept they would accept the breed that Hashem was was offering them. And yet at the same time, I think that we all intuitively grasp that even if it's not written in the Pshat of the Torah, the famous Midrash that a Kaddish Baruch Hu held Har Sinai over them, Talal uh, Har uh, that you know he was going to just threaten to kind of drop the mountain on them if they said no. So, what type of relationship is this where they they they, they seem to say 
that it seems to be freely entered into, but maybe they really didn't have the option of, of entering into that. So this is really, really strange. And it's what I want to try to talk about, and, and we'll, we'll see the root of it in, in ancient terms, is when we say breed, what, what, what is a breed? If you say to somebody, what is a breed? Now, some people will say, well, it's a contract. Some people say, well, it's an agreement. And those things are true. But, but fundamentally, it's clear that what's happening between Am Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu in Parshat Mishpatim is different than any contract or agreement that you and I know of today. Meaning, if, you know, I want to sell my house to you, we both have the opportunity or the option of going into that agreement or not going into the agreement. Each of us decides, is this, are the terms, terms that I like or don't like, and we're free to to make the agreement or not enter the agreement. And this is true in every sphere of our lives, whether we're talking about a sale or whether we're talking about employment, all both sides to, the, to, to whatever agreements we make are free to enter or not enter the agreement without repercussions. Obviously, you enter the agreement, and there are repercussions. There are there are implications of that, but that but that that can be freely entered or not entered into, and that doesn't seem to be the case here. It seems like Am Yisrael really doesn't have an option to say no. So, what is going on here? And what scholars began to notice pretty much in the 1930s, and then growing as, as they 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 saw more and more um, um, treaties uh, in ancient times, was the following that there was a type of relationship in the ancient world between kings, between states, if you will, that is really the model for what is for what a Kaddish Baruch Hu is proposing to Am Yisrael. This model is what is called, we'll keep it simple, a vassal treaty. And the way mm-hmm. in which these vassal treaties, there were several types of vassal treaties over time. The particular model that, that I'm speaking about today is the type of vassal treaty that existed Around the time of Yitziat Mitzrayim and Har Sinai, roughly 1300, 1200 BCE, what we see would happen uh, between kings, between states in this region around that time was the following. Let's say you had a weaker, a weaker king. He had a small little city. You know, like we see kings that aren't, you know, they're not all kings over vast, vast empires. Um, and say for Yoshua, we say every, every king, you know, has like a little city. So let's say you have your little city and you're the king of the little city. And you suddenly find yourself in terrible straits. You might be under siege from a, a foreign army. You might be suffering from hunger or famine or some type of uh, or drought or disease that has, that has plagued the land and, and you have nothing to eat. So when you are in distress, you need to do something and you've prayed to your gods and it hasn't worked. So now what do you do? And what, what, these, what these lesser kings would do is that they would turn to stronger kings in the area and say, Hatzilu, SOS, help me. And the stronger kings would come and help them. Not out of chesed. There's no chesed in international relations. <laughs> but because the stronger kings would recognize, hey, you know, if I help out that weaker king, then he can become an ally of mine. Okay, And so it was understood that if the stronger king sent, sent soldiers to help break the siege or sent bushels of wheat and sheep to help relieve the famine, it was understood by all that now the lesser king would, uh, as, as, as an expression of gratitude to the stronger king, would need to enter into a relationship with him that is called vassalage. Vassalage. Vassalage means, it doesn't mean, oh, I become your servant. I give up everything I own. I am, I am, I am a slave for you. It's not that. I retain, I am still king of my little kingdom. And I retain autonomy. But I have obligations to you because of what you did for me. I will have to send you troops to help fight your battles. I will probably pay you high taxes for a long time. 
Uh, I will be exclusively loyal to you and to no one else. And th these terms are dictated by the, the, the stronger king, what we'll call the sovereign king. There's two, there's two parties here, a sovereign king and a vassal king. And they enter a type of relationship between unequals. That's the point. They are unequal. This is different than anything we conceive of today because today all men and women are created equal. And so therefore everything that we do, we do, well, if I want to, I can be in it. And if I don't want to go, and I don't have to be in it. No, this wasn't the understanding. It would be a new amicable relationship but between unequals. There's a sovereign on top who dictates the terms and there's the vassal underneath who accepts the terms. That's the general idea, and, and it has several set aspects to it, set sections in the Vassal Treaty, and these all come out in the Torah. We can talk about that. Right. So again, this is sort of like a basic structure of, I would say, sort of like early international relations, and it's a way for people to, to, mm -hmm. keep, themselves, to keep themselves safe. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, again, as we move this idea forward, sort of how, how does that compare with what we see in the Torah? And Am I already jumping ahead when I say, so we're speaking about God as the sovereign and the people as, as essentially weak, meaning, or exactly. is there a different sort of, of play between us and, and God? It's just that what would, what would happen typically in these uh, uh, vassal treaties is that there would be, as I said, a kind of a set template. You know, just like if you go to sell a house and your, your lawyer isn't going to draft up a contract ex nihilo, they probably have on the shelf a set template yes. of what, uh, what my a, husband you know, does this for a living. I know them. Yeah. Oh, okay, very good. All you do is fill in the names. So, so these kings, they had like set templates. There were sets. They're always the same sections, the same the same elements in the treaty. And this is what they were. The first the first element of the treaty that would be written up would be a story that details what were the events that led the vassal to accept upon himself vassalage to the sovereign. What was the the delivery that the the salvation that the, uh, the sovereign uh, performed on behalf of the vassal such that the vassal was ready to enter into this agreement. That's a little bit like um, a, a personal uh, history. Well, personal history, but, but yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's it just what's, what's the background for it. Mm -hmm. And then after that would be stipulations. Okay. Stipulations would be what the, what the sovereign king says, you, what, what are our, what our, what are our obligations to one another laid out by the sovereign? This is what I expect from you. I expect from you taxes. I expect from you soldiers. I expect from you to return fugitive slaves. I expect from you to be exclusive, loyal only to me. You don't make you don't make covenants with anybody else. Um, stipulations of what you have to do for me, and then stipulations what I do for you. In case you are attacked, I will send relief. In case you are if there's a famine, I will send you. I will send you help. So then there's stipulations. Okay. The third thing would be, we're going to see how all of this plays out in the Torah. It's really one after the other. The next element of the vassal treaty would be, well, after all the stipulations, there would be uh, witnesses to the treaty. What are witnesses? Witnesses could be the sun, the moon, a whole bunch of other deities that might be witnesses to the treaty. Uh, there would be a call from the sovereign to the vassal to take his copy, because they each had copies, just like we both sides of today, we will both have copies of you know the the, uh, the agreement to sell the house between us. So they would both have their copies of the of the vassal treaty. The sovereign says to the vassal, the vassal, you must take your copy of this vassal treaty and you must put it inside the temple of your god. Like that's how you show that it's for real. Like he's also whatever your god is, he's also signing off on this. So it's like really important to him. And it would conclude with um, blessings and curses. 
you know, blessings in the event uh, that you that you fulfill your side of the vassal treaty and curses upon your head if you do not uh, fulfill uh, the term the terms of the treaty. Now we find all of this in this new relationship that is established at Har Sinai. Okay, and even though we have the word Brit already, of course, in Sefer Bereshit. In several places is a Brit with Noah, and there's two Britot with Abraham. I'm not talking about the, the lexical term Brit. I'm talking about what is the, the nature of this relationship at Sinai, because obviously what begins at Sinai is somehow different, expanded, but certainly different than the type of the relationship that a Kodesh Baruch Hu had, let's say, with the Avot and Sefer Bereshit. So, so it starts off in the same way. We have, we have the vassal, Am Yisrael, Be'etzara, uh, 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 they are in a very bad way. That is to say, they have just left Egypt and have nobody to feed them, nobody to clothe them, nobody to protect them. Um, and in fact, they were you know, slaves in Egypt. So they cried out for help, right? That's Peret Bet in Sefer Shemot. And Hashem heard them and Hashem came and delivered them. So now it's understood in the mindset of the time, ah, when a sovereign, when a greater king suddenly delivers salvation, to a lesser king who was in straits, dire straits, that lesser king, as an expression of gratitude, must now enter into relationship with the sovereign king as a vassal king. And this is Sinai. This is what happens. God says, okay, here are the terms. This is what I want from you. This is what I'm going to give to you in return. Am Yisrael says, yes, we accept. We, we, we do it because it, it's, they're obligated to because of the salvation that was done for them just as a vassal king would have to say, yes, yes, I'm going to accept this new relationship. And then we have throughout the Torah, extensive numbers of mitzvot. Those are the stipulations. Those are the obligations of the vassal, how, how the sovereign wants to be uh, recognized by the vassal. What does the vassal do for the sovereign? So we don't send soldiers to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, but we do his mitzvot. We do offer him korbanot. And in return, a Kodesh Baruch Hu offers us protection if we are faithful to, to, to the treaty. And then I'll just say, to finish out... Yeah, I just wanted to ask, so would you categorize Aseret Hadibrot and all the mitzvot and Parshat Mishpatim? They're both stipulations. They're obviously, there's something different we sense about each of them in the way that they're publicly given versus perhaps some other way that the Halachot and Mishpatim are given. But in this view, would be looking at them in the same category of stipulations of the treaty? For sure, yeah, it's not it's not an accident, Yosefa, that the the story of Kritatabrit, okay, of the establishment of the covenant, the Nasev and Nishma episode, is not right after the Aserat Adibrot. Correct, and there need, more needed to be said. It's, that's right, that's right. In fact, when the language of, of the Chumash there in Perachavdalid is that Moshe read to them Sefer Habrit, mm-hmm. Sefer Habrit. Well, what is Sefer Habrit? I mean, it's not the whole Torah. That wasn't given yet. I mean, many Mephoshim say that, that he read, you know, the, those mitzvot that were given until then. Basically, mm-hmm. the Aserat he brought in Parashat Mishpatim. Okay? So those are definitely part, part of the stipulations. Yeah. It's also, yeah. by the way, in has. Fact, I, I mean, we're not going to go there now, but there might be interesting ramifications for what's considered to be the official stipulations, what might have been considered a Torah Shavichtav, versus what else in the Torah might be considered sort of an elaboration on that, of some sort of mm-hmm. additions okay. to the stipulations. Are they are they yeah. amendments, or are they sort of other ver- other aspects okay. of Torah? That, that's, that, that's a separate podcast. But, uh, yeah. Right, okay. okay, yeah. 
And in fact, even the very language and phraseology of the Aserat Hadibrot is highly similar to what we find in these uh, vassal treaties. So that, for example, the va- if, I, if I said that the, the opening element of these vassal treaties would be uh, a brief account of what, what had happened between what had happened uh, to the to the vassals, such that he cried out to the to the to the sovereign uh, to ask for salvation. This this narrative in these treaties is always said in first person by the sovereign king. And so when a seratadi broke begins, This is exactly how these these vassal treaty historical prologues open. I, great king of Hatti you know, the Hittite kingdom, I did for you X, Y, and Z, and Z, and Z, and Z. Because the foundational impulse behind the obligation of the vassal to the sovereign is gratitude for the salvation that he gave him. And so, as you may know, there are different approaches to what exactly are the Ten Commandments. This is the Jewish tradition, this is the non-Jewish tradition. You know, because some read that opening verse not as a statement of, you know, some axiom that we have, but as an introduction. In any event, it is, it, it is fascinating that our responsibilities, our, our fealty to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, stems not from the fact that he is the Bore Olam, right? One could have expected that the Aserdi Brot would open in that way as well. I created the world and you are my, you are my servants. No, the Aserdi Brot, which sometimes we think of as universal, are actually very particular. Um, yes, it might be that, that, that you know, not committing adultery has been, has been uh, adopted worldwide, but, but the way in which it's phrased is you are obligated in this because I took you out of Egypt, because I brought you, I brought you salvation. When when we see when we see that the the, the, the very next uh, debra is that you shall not have any other gods other than me. Okay, now that's like wait a minute. Why, why is the Kaddish Baruch Hu talking about other gods as if kind of giving them credence? You know, it's like a little strange. And but it's it's taken directly from this model. It's the way in which the sovereign king says, "You vassal, you must be loyal to me and only me. You cannot have any loyalties to any other kings." So speaking in the same idiom. So we had the, uh, the historical introduction, stipulations, which we're calling in the Torah the mitzvot, um, the call to, as I said, to that the vassal must place his copy of the treaty in his own temple. Well, that's really interesting because in next week's Parsha, in Truma, this is exactly what happens, that we have inside our temple, which is Hashem's temple, it's all one, but at the heart of the Mishkan, at the heart of the Beit Mikdash, is of course the Kodesh Kodeshim, and the heart of the Kodesh Kodeshim is the Aron, and inside the Aron is the Aron Habrit, or Aron Haidut. And so so the, 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 the vassal treaty is the central thing inside inside our Bet Mikdash. And then, of course, after we have all the mitzvot, we get to the end of Sefer Bayikra, where we have brachot and klalot, right? Just like, just like what they have uh, uh, in those vassal, those vassal treaties. And what's so beautiful about this paradigm is that the Torah goes through it twice. In other words, we have, we have stipulations followed by brachot and klalot ending in Vayikra. And then at the end of the 40 years, at our vote Moav, Moshe Rabbeinu goes through it all again because there's a new generation. Mm. A new generation needs to renew the breed. This is also what they would do back then. When you, the, the relationships between sovereign king and vassal king were personal. They were between kings. It's not like today, you know, we have states or countries. And what this meant is that when a vassal king would pass on to the next life, there would be a need to renew the treaty with his successor. 
And so Kaddish Baruch Hu is renewing Brit Sinai with Am Yisrael at Arvot Moav in Sefer Dvarim. And so once again, we have the beginning of Dvarim, which is all the stories, and then lots of stipulations, mitzvot, ending with brachot and kalot. I just want to add to point out what I know to you and I is an obvious undertone here, but this kind of study sheds light on many questions that in more academic circles have, they've tried to really challenge the Torah, meaning if they ask, you know, questions about repetition or why it was even necessary or differences between different places in the Torah, this, for example, comes and answers a very, very big question about why repeat stories or why repeat episodes or scenes in Dvarim that we had earlier. And as you're saying here, this is following a very, very normative way of creating covenant. As you said, you can't rely exactly. on the covenant that was created with the previous generation. So also just from, from a perspective of sort of academic study, this kind of academic study, which looks at the ancient Near East, which sheds light on so many things that to a modern ear might sound repetitious or, or unusual, when you look at it back in its original context makes perfect sense and really makes that question seem a little bit ridiculous at times. Yeah, absolutely. My next question, sort of as we start to to wind down, is this question of differences. We've really spoken about the similarities between what we have in the Torah and the and sort of the rubric that was familiar in the ancient Near East. And my question is often when we compare material to the Torah, we're also mining it for the unique contributions that the Torah has to make when we when we compare those. And so I'm curious. Is it just a matter of here's that that form and it's similar to the Torah, or does the Torah and and God's stamp on this whole process sort of give different emphasis or different language that sheds light on the unique nature of our relationship with God and with the Torah? Yeah, I think that there's something that's just remarkable theologically about this whole this whole paradigm. I think the way in which ancients outside of Israel related to their gods was always just one of fear uh, or or trying to buy off the god. Either I'm afraid that he's going to clobber me if I don't build him a temple, or maybe I can bribe him by bringing more sacrifices, and then he'll be nice to me. And that's the sum total of what it means to worship a deity in the ancient world. And, you know, we might have thought that that a Kaddish Baruch Hu would come along and say, well, I am all-powerful, and you are nothings. You are just little slaves, and you must serve me because I created you, and I could, I could you know, whop you, you know, in an instant. And instead... Using this paradigm, Hashem comes along and says, yes, I am above you. I am above you, but I, I, I respect you. You are still a king. You are a vassal king. Each one of you, the Aserah Dibrod is in the Shon Yachid. It turns to each member of Am Yisrael and says, you are a vassal king. You are a king. And I want you to come and see me in my court three times a year. And so Hashem sets up a paradigm I would almost say that it's using Lashon Chazal, An Vitanuto Baruch Hu. We see his modesty that Hashem says, I am going to lower myself to say, I need you to help create this relationship with me. I need you as a junior partner. I am not going to pattern myself after gods that were universal or gods that were all powerful. I'm going to pattern myself in my relationship with you as a sovereign king. I am a of you, but I look to create a positive relationship with you. And I want your love and I want to love you. And this is how these love means means devoted, means it means fealty to one another. And that is the type of relationship that these kings were seeking 
to form with one another. And so it's a really cool move to paint the Kaddish Baruch Hu, uh, in those terms. So you're saying both this sheds light on the idea of loving God, that it's that this treaty, which usually was done sort of out of fear, is now being done out of love. And it also points to each individual, which is, of course, a radically different way of looking at, at people in the ancient world, where the individual did not have any sort of special kind of status. We think about that in a much more modern context, but you're saying the Torah really, really revolutionizes that. And, and what about the question of, of being chosen? Meaning, does this, does this correlate to that idea of, of how, how we're God's chosen people? Yeah, it does. Actually, actually, yeah. Because what we find is that, is that while, while each vassal was told, you must be loyal only to me, sovereigns retained their right to have vassal treaties with many different mm-hmm. neighboring countries. And in fact, we find that when a, when, when a sovereign king wants to indicate to a vassal that he is his favorite vassal, the, the word that's used in Ugaritic is segulat, like am segulat, mm-hmm. you are my favorite vassal. Okay, So even that comes from it. And I would say that we see maybe with this, uh, we'll, we'll, be, we'll begin to, to close out, you know, even the word love, ahava, we get a new insight here. Ahava in, in, or loving in, in a lot of uh, uh, ancient contexts and in many places in the Torah, it's very clear what love means. This is great. What to define love? Oh, wow. could have a whole podcast. could have a whole series of podcasts on that one. So I'll tell you what it means in ancient context, okay? <laughs> love means one thing. It means to be loyal. It means to be loyal. What you see in these in the, in the, 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 the correspondences between these kings, I, I love you. Love you. I never met you. These kings never saw each other. They were just exchanging, you know, uh, clay tablets off, uh, across hundreds of miles. Love you means I am. I was loyal to you. Did we have this also in Sefer Melachim, where it says that Hiram Melech Tzor loved David, Shlomo's father. But what does that mean? They, they probably never met. What it meant is that he was loyal to him. And I think that when Hashem is calling upon us, Hashem Elokecha, uh, at least in the pshat, what it means above all is loyalty. And I think that this has imp- incredible implications for us as well. When we say, I love you, what do we mean by that? Do we just mean that you're, you're my heartthrob? Or do we mean, you know, the, the, the deeper meaning here? Yeah, okay, put your money where your mouth is. To love somebody is to be loyal to them. I also think that that's incredibly meaningful for people, obviously, in their personal avodat Hashem, because, mm-hmm. you know, when we're called upon, we talk about mm-hmm. fulfilling mitzvot from, from ahava or yirah, from mm-hmm. fear or from mm-hmm. love, uh, there's a lot of pressure, I think, that people feel on the love mm-hmm. side. I'm even thinking now, I'm thinking of different yeah. commentaries on the sure. Torah, thinking of, of the Rambam, who Dafka takes it to the side of, of the love in the heartthrob, when he sure. says, you know, you have to sure. feel, you have to feel for God, like in Shir Shirim, that, that's right. our metaphor. Right. And what you're really that's saying, right. which that's I think right. could be a big relief for many people, mm-hmm. is that when it says to love a mitzvah, or to love the mitzvot, and to love God, it, it doesn't mean that you have to think this is, you know, the, the thing you would have chosen to do. But it's a matter of of mechuyavut, of obligation, and, and of dedication, listening, dedication, and, and, loyalty. and dedication. And I think also, I think also in our in our own in our personal lives, you know, the person that we spend our, our entire lives with, you know, yeah, we don't have to love every say, single love aspect. But what does we, that mean? What does it mean to love? If, if the dedication and loyalty is there, yes, that is the love. 
that's what it is. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. This was really uh, quite a pleasure. And uh, as we already had in our personal exchanges, um, I'm also going to get you back, please God, in the future to speak about other other concepts of law that I think are also really critical to think about. What, what I love, and I, I hope that our listeners take from this episode, is this idea that when we when we sort of look at the Torah in its broader context, first of all, it makes it much easier to understand why things play out the way they do, but ultimately also provides us with tremendous meaning that we wouldn't even be able to unearth that if we didn't know and understand the the, the Torah in, in this sort of what we would call original context, as you said now, shedding light mm-hmm. on what love means, shedding light on what it means to be, to be a chosen people. Uh, you know, we take it in, in very different forms than we've modernized it and ask our own modern questions on what these things mean. But so often a lot of those questions are really uh, sort of clarified and it's made clear what are appropriate or sort of less relevant questions in terms of the way the Torah was initially given when we sort of see it in its, in its original context. So thank you so much for, for shedding light on this whole, on this whole section. Uh, and of course, as the Torah continues as well. Thank you very much. You know, I can, I'll just end by saying that the Rambam writes at the end of the Mar Nebuchim, he says, Oh, halavai that I would have had more access to more materials about the ancient world because then I would have understood the Torah better. And we, Baruch Hashem, in our age, we have these opportunities. And the Rambam would just be gaga over the types of things that we are, that we have privy to now. And uh, hopefully we are continuing in, uh, in his path. So I uh, thank you, Yosefa, and uh, best wishes to everybody who's listening in the Matan community. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.